0: This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. Welcome to the spoiler edition of the Game of Thrones podcast, brought to you by the Bald Move Network. You can find all of our content on baldmove.com. This is for episode 506, entitled Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken. And I don't have much to say for preamble other than, fuck, my Sansa of spike theory. And uh, that was a disaster. And I'm sorry I got... Any of your hopes up, and I'm certainly sorry I got my hopes up. I'm also really glad I decided to cover the whole Jora the Explora theory last episode because it feels like a lot of that beautiful tinfoil is going to get flushed down the toilet. I mean, certainly the more interesting stuff about the Euron or Victarion unification. So once again, sorry, Ironborn. You're not only getting fucked out of your favorite characters, but probably also at other plot arcs, too. We'll we'll see. We got four more episodes to go. You know, the other thing I've been thinking about that there was a thread on Reddit that uh, started uh, my thoughts on this was the concept. You know, there's a lot of people. I, I was actually surprised in the last few weeks. There's been some articles on Grantland and some other uh, critical sites. I think there was one even on Forbes talking about whether. The Game of Thrones, the best days are behind it. And people have been, you know, speculating about, man, it just seems like there's something missing. The audience seems to have plateaued a little bit. Now, before this season started, I remember talking with Jim, and I might even said it on the preview cast, that I was worried about this season because this is the season where things might bog down uh, things, you know, the people that... Have been kind of holding on to see, hey, is there going to be revenge against the Boltons? Is there going to be revenge against the Freys? Is there anything going to come from the the, the Lannisters? Um, that these people, uh, is Danny ever going to get across the Narrow Sea? These people have been frustrated, but have been kind of placated by the Red Weddings and the Mountains and the Vipers and and the Purple Weddings and and all those big beats that they might start getting a little antsy. And I think some of that is the the resultant of the books becoming kind of more deliberate um, with a lot more intricate plotting and, and some of these knots, these Miranese knots, if you will, that the Double Ds have had to unravel. But I also think uh, there is another point on Reddit, as I mentioned, about think about coming out of, you know, Game of Thrones, Storm of Swords, Clash of Kings. I think I got Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords uh, mixed up Think about going into Feast and Dragons And how you were ready for some revenge From your good guy characters And we didn't really get any But we had a couple things we could hang our hats on We had the Grand Northern Conspiracy You know, meeting with uh, Lord Manderly And and hearing that the North remembers And uh, the other thing is The Brotherhood of Banners running around uh, Praying on the phrase Led by Lady Stoneheart those are all things we're like, okay, okay, the bad guys are going to get theirs eventually, and we can see the wheels in motion. Show watchers don't have any of that. There's no Lady Stoneheart. There's no Brotherhood Without Banners going around avenging uh, the crimes against the small folk. There's no Grand Northern Conspiracy. There's a hint that the North remembers, but I don't think anyone imagines that your are for your show only watch or what, what kind of scope we're talking about there. So I wonder... If some of the dissatisfaction we're seeing with people and some of the ratings being down are just this kind of getting fed up with not getting any kind of fan service, um, you know, being set up and kicked in the teeth time and time again. I wonder if that's that's starting to grate on some people. Uh I don't know. That's a, a theory that I've got anyway. And I've been thinking a lot about this week.
1: The thrills of King's Island just minutes away and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic little Miami River on Saturday Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our badass best six page at baldmove.com/ live live
0: Let's get right to the feedback. Tim R said the show made a big point to show us John writing to all the houses asking for prisoners. The show introduced the Brotherhood without banners and then abruptly stopped talking about them. Maybe the reason is they have not been active has be- been because they were arrested. While John takes the high road and asks the Boltons for help, Ramsey will try to spite John by sending him the worst prisoners he has to cause chaos at the wall. The Brotherhood without banners. On either episode 9 or 10, we will see the Brotherhood of That Banners arrive at the wall. They will let John know Sansa Stark is being married to Ramsay and not Elaine Stone. Since there is no man, so we will get no pink letter. Instead, this new information that family is still alive will inspire John to leave the wall. Ollie will confront John as the only reason John has told Ollie to accept the wildlings who killed his family were his vows. With John breaking his vows for his family, this will be the last straw that breaks the camel's back. The shot, last shot we will see of John will be of a dream sequence of him warging into ghost. This might take us as far north of the wall, or it might take us as far as north of the wall, where we will see the army of dead preparing to march uh, for the Battle of the Dawn. The camera will then cut back to show Ollie standing over a sleeping Jon Snow, cut and end season. The start of season six will be Jon Snow waking up with Theros of Mir standing over him. So I like this theory well enough there, Tim. Um, It might feel like a rehash of the Roos Bolton sending Locke up to the wall from last season in the guise of a Black Brother uh, to track down Bran and Rickon. I'm worried that if Roos sends another lot of miscreants and misfits up there that it's going to feel to the audience like, oh, we've seen this before. But I, I, I don't know. I do really like the thought of the straw breaking the camel's back moment. That's perfect. If Ollie will toe the line solely because, and on the basis of his vows, then sure, John breaking his would end that fragile loyalty. So I I really like that point a lot, Tim. Moving on to Connor OB. What if, after the fighting pits, Drogon doesn't take Dany to the Dothraki Grass Sea, but rather to Valeria? The shot of Drogon cruising over Valeria with Tyrion and Jorah watching gave me the impression that he's comfortable there and likely is where he goes when he goes off for extended periods of time. So why not bring Danny there? The Lothraki have all been but forgotten in the show. I can't remember the last time I saw or heard mention of them who should still be with Danny at this point in her story. So why circle back to a group of people the show watchers have become less familiar with over the seasons? I think Drogon will fly Danny to Valeria. They'll hang out for a while, and she'll possibly learn some new things about something that she's clueless on, namely her dragons. This could even be a cryptic interpretation of the Quaith prophecy, having to go east before west, blah, blah, blah. Well, what if going east is more metaphoric and means that she needs to return to her family's ancestral home, which is still east of Westeros before she can go west to Westeros, to Westeros. Uh... Well, I mean, if we're assuming that the dragon's horns are going to be crucial to controlling the dragons, somebody somewhere has to find one and use it to master the dragons, right? Another thought I had, because I got a rash of people taking Jim's side and the whole Targaryens equals fireproof theory. Now, honestly, the only reason I discount that theory as fact is because George has explicitly said in his So Spake Martin archives and in a couple other appearances that... Danny being fireproof was a one-time-only magic, magic blood-magic-type ritual exception. But on the show, in Season 1, they did do a lot to imply that she was resistant to fire. She got in that too-hot bath without batting an eyelash. She grabbed one of her dragon eggs right out of the fire when I think it burnt one of her servant girls. Uh, And of course, you know, she survived the Cal Drogo's funeral pyre. So let me see if I can build a little bit onto your thoughts here um let's go with her being fire resistant and they took pains to set that up in the show because they could see seasons into the future and know that they're going to want to do some martin's razoring which of course is our term for character economy and plot economy right so they're like ah we don't want to do the king's moods we don't want to do euron we don't want to do and that gets rid of a whole slew of characters but oh man we got this Dragonhorn stuff that we got to figure out well What is the main drawback to blowing a dragon horn into books? Well, it literally sets the blower on fire from the inside out, scorches the lungs. Uh, It's it's fatal, uh, a bad deal. That's a pretty big drawback. All things considered, unless Danny is fireproof and she's got asbestos lungs, then it's not a problem. Although the more I think about it, the more I worry that blowing magic horns on the show is just going to really look silly. I can already hear Jim bitching. Oh, there are magic dragon controlling horns. How fucking convenient. So it's still problematic from a Is this going to look silly in the show universe of Game of Thrones standpoint? I don't know. More on that later. Let's get to Leah T's. Email. She says, I have my own th- take on the Melisandre Jon Snow Stannis, a.k.a. Azora High theory. I believe Stannis is just a means to an end for Melisandre. She knows that she can see, or we know that she can see into her fires of what is to come. The girl in the pale mare who approaches Castle Black, which, by the way, is part of the same prophecy Danny is told, only interpreted differently. The apparent danger Jon is in and other instances. We also know that Master Ammon believes or knows that a glamour has been cast on Stannis' sword and that it's not Lightbringer. I think she's been playing the long game in a sense that with Stannis, knowing all along that he's not Azor High, but that Jon Snow is. And maybe Jon Snow isn't Azor High in the end, but Melisandre thinks he is. She had to find a way to the wall to help the true savior of the realm. We also know that Stannis is getting weaker. I always found it odd that a man of Stannis' character could fall prey to someone like Melisandre. Given all the descriptions of how strong and stern and he's the best military commander in Westeros, etc., I find it hard to believe that he, quote-unquote, saw the light... So to speak, on his own, maybe she cast some kind of spell on him and bent him to his will—her will, rather. You know, it's possible, Lee or Leia, Lay, Le, Lay. Le? Um, it's possible, but in the books, I think Melisandre is a true blue believer in Stannis. You know, I kind of questioned that until we got to dance and we got a couple of her POV chapters where. She keeps asking the fires for an update about what Zora High is up to when he's on the march. And she clearly means Stannis. She's expecting Stannis. But the fires keep showing her snow. That's snow with a capital S. Um, which, you know, you never can tell in the book whether... That means that she's literally just seeing snow blown into fires, or she's seeing Jon Snow, or she's seeing the snow. But George wants us to know that it's really symbolic of Jon Snow with the capital S. Because when I say capital S, I mean he literally capitalized the word snow. So that's all fascinating up for debate. Now, when we're reading this, if you're an R plus L equals J fan... Uh, and a book fan you're like slapping yourself on the forehead and like of course of course but Melisandre doesn't know this and she misinterprets her fires all the time even when she desperately wants to know something like what's going on with John's sister or what's going on with the brothers who are off-ranging so that she can give John that information it can come true and then she can gain John's trust the fact that she can't even when she really really wants to and it blows up in her face or evidence that I think she's on the up and up. And she's a true believer and she's genuine in her support for Stannis. Now, this might change in the future. I Obviously, I think it will change in the future. But I believe it's an accurate account of her state of mind as of Dance of Dragons. Now, is that the same as the books? Um, since, since the television show doesn't get to do her POV, it could be that they're more broadly hinting that this is a more long con because they... You know, they're working off the Martin bullet and bullet bullet points, and they can see that she's eventually going to dump him over for Jon Snow. So maybe they're laying those tracks earlier so that they can't just show us what's in her mind without it being hokey and ham fisted. So that's my thoughts on that. Let's move on to Brian from Texas. What if show the show has Sansa become Lady Stoneheart? Theon rescues Sansa by sweeping her away in the dead of night just before Stannis' assault on Winterfell. Ramsey, of course, uses every means available to him and lists his hunting friend with benefits Miranda to chase her down, which is a foreshadowing of what was told in the Sansa-Miranda bat scene for episode six, as Miranda recounts her hunting parties with Ramsey. Sansa and Theon try to escape toward the wall, hoping to get asylum from either Stannis or the Black Brothers. Initially, they get away, but the winter snows are too much, and the Miranda hunting party catches up with Sansa and Theon and kill both characters in the process. Sansa's body is discovered by the Baratheon army, and Melisandre, using the Lord of Light, revives Sansa as Lady Stoneheart. And We can see Sansa Stoneheart's black eyes, gray skin, and white hair look into the camera. Roll credits end of season five. This plot eliminates the need for the brothers without banners and Lord Beric's kiss of life. It allows the Double Ds to go forward without Catelyn and makes Sansa a more interesting character as an undead and vengeful Stoneheart as opposed to a meek and victimized Sansa Stark. With Brienne finally catching up with Sansa at the beginning of Season 5, we can then assume that Brienne's plot to find Jamie will be restored, as Sansa Stoneheart will be able to cross paths with Brienne and Pod again sometime in Season 6. Alright, this I like. You're not the first person to suggest that Sansa equals Stoneheart, but I think you're the first one to say it's a literal fulfillment in the Undead sense. Uh, I like Sansa taking on the Stan- Stoneheart role, and I've talked about this before. And they've laid a lot of groundwork with her ice-cold way of dealing with Brienne and with Littlefinger's hints that she's on the Lannister Dole. And especially after this episode, if any anyone gets to be a vengeful ghost hunting down the Freys and Bolton, it's Sansa motherfucking Stark. So I really like that. I would also explain why they're bringing Melisandre south of the Wall. Because um, why else would they need her to do that? Now, it is a little bit of problematic from... What are they going to do with John when he gets uh, for the watched? So that that's going to be interesting if, if this is a literal fulfillment. Um, it could be that we're kind of both on the right track. That Melisandre is going to eventually wander back to the Wall. The Brotherhood Without Banners are going to find Sansa around Winterfell because they've been attracted to Winterfell because they've heard of the Bolton setting up shop and what scumbags they are. So this would all be kind of interesting and an undead sansa would be kind of cool um i'm not sure if it'd be a more cooler version than if she was alive and taking her revenge though i don't know i'm I, i'm still got a kind of a heavy heart about this uh, latest episode so let's move on i'd like to respond to your comments last week about book to show changes you mentioned that book readers would flip out if the show changed the caesar-esque death of john snow I disagree. Personally, I would welcome the change. I have grown tired of Martin' his killing, but not really killing style of dealing with his characters. George, what the fuck? Either you kill your characters or you keep them alive. Enough of this in between shit. Which brings me to Lady Stoneheart. Aaron, on every Friday podcast, you mentioned the Lady Stoneheart storyline. Let it go. I hate that storyline in the book, and I'm glad they have not incorporated it into the show. Screw Catlin. Out of all the characters to bring back to life, Martin chose to bring back her. Why? Am I the only one who thinks Book Catlin is a hateful character? She's mean to Jon Snow. She stupidly believes her crazy sister. She defies Rob to send Jamie and Brienne on a doomed mission. What exactly about this screams, hey, let's use some of freaky deaky magic to bring this useless character back to life? The Brotherhood of the Banner's got by fine without her for quite a while. I don't believe, from a continuity standpoint, that the Brotherhood needs Catlin as their leader, or that they would readily accept her as their leader. I'm sure that they'd go after amoral people, such as the phrase. anyway. You know, it's interesting, if I take a little break from email here, Brianna, it's interesting that it seemed like the Brotherhood in the books largely agrees with you. I always got the feeling that none of them are exactly happy with following Cat's leadership, but they have faith in the Lord of the Light, which is understandable. I mean, uh, if some dude I worked with came back to life because of fire magic, I would probably convert to the Red God, I'm just being honest. Uh, when a lot of and, and when that light passed from Barrick to Kat, they're like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is the Lord's work. He's mysterious. What are you going to do? I suspect a lot of this stuff, as with the stuff, of the sparrows are Martin exploring and rejecting other forms of top down, authoritative leadership schemes, uh, which builds to my larger theory that I've talked about in the last few weeks of the end game for the Game of Thrones is to eliminate the whole Thrones aspect. And have a government for and of the people instead of an endless string of tyrants and dictators and sycophants co-opting the common good and leading the common people into disaster. Otherwise, you're kind of right. Lady Stoneheart is just foreshadowing that the Lord of Light can bring people back from the dead, but they kind of already had that with barracks, so I don't know what to tell you. Brian continues, in short, I will not riot if the show changes Jon Snow's flimsy kind of sword of death. Although I wish we could get more details from the books incorporated into the show, I think the writers have done a good job paring down that action. Well, thanks. I was honestly surprised. I would thought that that would be a near universal uh, opinion that the show or book readers would write if they didn't, if they retconned or remixed Jon Snow's uh, assassination. But clearly, I'm wrong. I don't know if it's a sizable minority or if it's just a couple of you out there, but you have been heard. Hunter W says I was thinking they may try to cut out Varys's little birds murdering Sir Kevin when they get on to boat uh, when he got on that boat with Tyrion. But now that half of our favorite fake Westeros sitcom has been M.I.A. for a few episodes, I feel like it's game on. Do we have enough time to build up Sir Kevin before he meets his fate? I feel like plenty of show watchers will have no idea who he is. Well, Hunter, I think you're underestimating the show watchers. Uh, let me put it this way. If you see a previously on featuring Kevin storming out of the small council around episode 9 or 10, you will really know that it's game on. I mean, just in talking with Jim uh, on the show and off the show, I think Kevin made a huge impression this season, just on that scene of telling Cersei what's what um, and storming off to the Casterly Rock. And I think if show watchers found out that Kevin is coming back to the capital... that that would give them some reasonable hope of the rule of little King Tommen because, you know, let's say his mom did the penance walk and now uh, uh, Loris is in jail and Marjorie's in jail and his mom's in jail and he's got Kyburn and fucking Maester Paisel to keep him company and Kevin comes riding back with like, oh, for fuck's sake, expression on his face and he's going to roll up his sleeves and get back to work and then a crossbow bolt hits him that is going to build up their their hopes well i don't don't know if hopes is the right word with preserving the lannister rule although i think everybody likes tommen i think tommen's a good guy uh but they have this hope that maybe there'd be some stability only to get it shattered with his death and you're right Varys, after he's lost Tyrion, is now all freed up to do whatever i mean He stated he wanted to go and help out Danny, but he might take a sober reflection of his skills and think, you know, I'm not as good as an advisor as I am a getting, you know, I'm a black ops guy. I'm a wet works kind of guy. I'm going to go and do what I was doing before, only in a much more open, uh, underhanded and pervasive way. You know, instead of like using my little birds and pulling strings, I'm just going to go in there, get my hands dirty. That'd be kind of interesting. Maz writes in, I'm now noticing more and more that Double D's are trying really hard to hide or remove magic in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire if they can. Obviously, it's kind of impossible to avoid Danny hatching dragons from stone eggs, but what about other magic that's in the books and not in the show? After seeing this season's reveal the temple of the many faced god, it struck me that the ordered faces looked a lot like a catalog of books at a library. From the books, I pictured the faceless men having a personal inventory of faces that they could magically change when they had to. But from the show, it looks like they are making actual face masks from the corpses that they get from the euthanasia center they run upstairs. This seems to be supported by Jacken's reveal to Arya at the House of Black and White, where he appears to pull off a mask to reveal his Jack and face. What do you think? Either way, so far as the show is concerned, there is no need as yet for the faceless men to be magical. Well, first off, the Hall of Faces is like it was in the books. Um... Maybe a little bit more lifelike because I was thinking a little bit more grizzly and chainsaw Texas massacre kind of looking uh, face mask. But, you know, it's a reasonable one to one facsimile. And also, I want to see how Arya actually becomes someone else in the show. I mean, if you recall in the books, it's a process filled with a lot of blood and pain and some of that freaky deaky magic that my friend Jim and Brianna like so much. Uh, and also, you know, as far as book magic versus show magic, I mean, shit, you got shadow babies, the warlocks of Karth, the resurrection of the dead, ice zombies, witches doing blood magic for telling prophecies, warging, green seeing, children of the forest throwing goddamn fireballs. That's all in the show. So I'd say that there is already a good amount of magic in the world. Um, but let's continue your email. You say it makes me wonder what else could be altered or cut. Will Arya ever warg? Where are the obsidian candles? Can there be a horn that brings down the wall or one that controls dragons? A flaming sword for the prince that was promised? Perhaps this is all an attempt by the Double D's to appeal to a wider, non-fantasy interested audience. And I know that A Song of Ice and Fire is pretty minimal, minimal with magic compared to a lot of fantasy series out there. But as far as the show's concerned, there seems to be a magic's razor, if it can be called that to cut with we already have dragons and whites and I think we'll need brand to fly metaphorically and john to be real born so from there it looks to me like the supernatural need to be explained naturally or it will be cut well like I said I'm not so sure and you know about the dragon horns and obsidian candles I suspect we'll need another season or another book whichever comes first to get the answers on that but I do stand what I said a few podcasts ago that it's too late to introduce truly new forms of magic you can have stronger versions of existing magic. You can combine existing powers in new and interesting ways. But there's going to be a lot of people calling bullshit if in season seven, there just happens to be a horn that can destroy a wall or one that can co-op dragons. In fact, if they don't get any of these concepts introduced by the end of this season, I'd say it's already too late. I mean, think about what kind of bullshit it will be if we're hip deep in season five and it turns someone just turns up with a dragon or a horn that can control dragons or a horn that can shatter the wall. Um, I'm trying to think how they're going to believably, you know, if, if, if they're going to credibly threaten Westeros, they got to do something with the wall and, and how in the world they're going to do that without introducing some kind of new power. But then again, are the white walkers mysterious enough that the night King can kind of ride up to the wall and just like, Wave his hand at it and make it fall down. Well, that looks stupid? I mean, what the hell's the point of the wall if it can be, you know, overcome that easily? It it doesn't seem like much of a war. It seems like more of a, you know, walls of Jericho situation from, from the Old Testament. So, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. But I think simultaneously there is plenty of magic in the world. It's commiserate with what we've seen in the books, and I don't know that they need new forms of magic. But then again. The obsidian candles and what's going on at the Citadel or at Old Town at the end of dance. Maybe we'll see. And it all depends on how well they introduce it. Sean writes in and says, it's obvious that Jor is going to end up in the fighting pit at the end. But I predict his opponent will be Dario. It will make for a very dramatic confrontation between the two men who love Danny. Then just when the fight is nearing its climax, a Drogon, which will be awesome, especially for non book readers who don't know he's coming. Now for some real tinfoil. What if you guys were actually right about this whole grayscale providing protection from fire? What if Drogon blasts Dario and, Jor- and Jorah, but only Jorah survives? They could also weave it in with a scene of Melisandre trying to sacrifice Shireen to the Red God, but it doesn't work. That would be awesome, because really, what's the point of Shireen having grayscale anyway? It could be an epic end of a season shocker that will leave even book readers stunned. Sure, uh, I, that, that seems accurate, but to what end? I mean, it's a cool enough concept. And hell, my buddy Jim, I think, is the one who came up with it in the the first place. But I'm trying to decide how it would look to have a less lethal version of grayscale to be proof against fire. I mean, you'd have to infect a whole army with that for it to be effective, right? I mean, if you're going to see dragon combat and some kind of large scale before the end of the series, having one or two dudes that are proof against fire is not really going to help save the day. If this were set in a modern age, then I'd absolutely buy that you get some scientists together and they could sequence the genes and flip the DNA and genetically modify this and pseudoscience that, and Bob's your uncle, you have a fireproof fighting force. But I don't know how that would work in Westeros. It's a cool concept, and it would explain why you've got all this grayscale stuff that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere in the books other than setting a timer for John Con, which he doesn't even seem to be that worried about, and giving... Giving Shireen a more s- tragic backstory. And I feel like that there might be something with Patchface. I know there's a lot of prophecy and stuff about Patchface and the drowned god and that being connected to Shireen. But honestly, because it's kind of an Iron Islander thing, I'm not really well versed in that. Maybe if someone else has some inside knowledge about how her condition fits in with Patchface and some of the crazy shit he says about stuff going on under the sea. Uh, that would be interesting. But as far as I know, you know, if we're using Martin's razor, Patchface is not in the books or not in the show. So a lot of that stuff's got to be kind of redundant, which is kind of a lot of Martin's prophecies. A lot of Martin's prophecies can uh, repeat and confirm things that one character is told. And then another character hears things later. Anyway, let's move on to Andrew McSee. Is there any way, the show runners are purposely keeping Tyrion's beard darker, subtly hinting that he might not be one of the golden haired children of House Lannister. <laughs> uh How about Jamie's hair? They keep calling him golden haired with a straight face when he's no more blonde than I am. And if you've seen my pictures, I'm not blonde at all. Uh But anyway, you got to keep your tinfoil straight. Andrew uh, Tyrion is speculated to be a secret Targaryen, which would require him to be even more blonde. You'd have to be more platinum blonde. Uh, and if he's just a generic bastard, I don't know what storytelling point that would would serve. I believe I did a tinfoil on this. Check the tinfoil archive, which I'll remind everyone is posted in the show notes of each and every spoiler episode. Uh, but I think I did something with Tyrion being a secret Targaryen last year. But it kind of, you know, real briefly hinges on we know that the Mad King Aerys had kind of the hots for Joanna Lannister. And there is a lot of textual evidence that there was some impropriety going on uh, that Tywin was a little aware of. And then he put a, a, a kibosh to it. And then you have Tyrion. And there's a lot of actually interesting similarities between the way Tyrion is described, especially at a birth, and Danny's actual miscarriage. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things about him dreaming of dragons, and he's got, like, you know, in the books, he's got mismatched colored eyes, which was a kind of, uh, I, I believe, one of the Fires had, and he's got the blonde hair. There's some evidence to suggest that he might be one of these secret Targaryens, and thus one of the three heads of the dragon, too. So um, I keep my eyes peeled, but I'm looking for him to go blonder, not, not less blonde. John T., says, I've been spectacularly disappointed with the vast majority of this season so far. I think it's time we can officially start worrying about the adaptation by bullet point approach, that it's going to be an issue going forward. If this is the result of squishing together two books and dramatically condensing characters and plot lines into one season's worth of material, what are we going to get when we have a whole season based on rough outlines that they have from George R.R. Martin? These guys have done a great job of adaptation. I don't want to take any of that away from them, but man, I feel like more often than not when we're set out on these wild deviations that the results are inconsistent with the situations and the characters that have already been established. Perfect examples of cutting and pasting people into divergent narratives have been Winterfell and Dorn the season. My biggest gripe with taking Sansa and placing her back in Winterfell is that the theory is this gives Sansa more agency in her story but ignores the fact of what we know will probably happen to her along the way. This is not the Sansa we saw at the end of last season. This is Sansa the victim, and it's a huge backslide. And there's no way that Littlefinger, we have established in this universe, wouldn't know that leaving Sansa alone with these people isn't a huge risk to her safety. And Dorne, man, I for one was really looking forward to Dorne. They both gutted it and turned it into an incoherent narrative train wreck. No Ariana Martel, so her part is given to Ilaria, but changed into a convoluted mess. What exactly is the logic of their plan? It's just all lazy writing. Killing Marcella would likely only get your head on a pike in addition to a war. It makes even less sense since Ilaria knew Oberyn's feelings on the subject of hurting little girls. And what is Jaime's plan? You walk in this royal palace and steal away the heir to Doran's fiancée, and then what? You're still in the middle of the desert and you stick out quite a lot. Do you think they're going to throw up their hands and go, oh, well? All this culminates into both sides miraculously showing up at the same time in a poorly staged showdown. So, thus far, what are your feelings about the season's changes to the book narrative? What's worked and what hasn't? For me, the Tyrion plot has worked, but the goings on at Winterfell and in Dorne have not been successful as of yet. Maybe they pay off at the end, but the road to get there has been paved with potholes. Does this mean, or does what we've gotten this season give you pause about what we will get next season and beyond? Well, the premise was great, right? You replace fake Arya with a newly empowered, more cunning, and stronger Sansa Stark. And that sounds great. That sounds interesting and exciting. But then you force her into the role of fake Arya, which doesn't make sense from a character arc sense and causes another 100,000 articles discussing yet another controversial rape scene in Game of Thrones. So what the fuck? Uh going down to Dorne, replace Balin Swan and Eris O'Kart and goddamn Gerald I am of the night, Darkstar Dane with Jamie and Braun. You raise the stakes with Marcella by having her uncle being down there. Well, uncle, quote unquote uncle. Uh maybe have Dorne skip the whole Quentin nonsense and make it his idea to crown Marcella as Queen of the Realm, and you march Dorne to war as the Lannisters are weak, and you form an alliance with the Tyrells since they're all pissed off about the Lannisters now too. I mean that's interesting. But then you get an even shittier and pointless kidnapping attempt of Marcella than what happens in the books. And man, that is saying a lot because that was a huge head scratcher when I was reading. What the fuck, what the fuck is going on here? And I hate to say it, but the most successful stuff in the show is stuff that works in the books. Arya's faceless man arc, solid gold. Jon and Stannis' relationship at the wall, really well done. Jon struggles with Lord Commander, a little rushed, but I think they're firing on all cylinders, and Theon's core arc seems intact too, and Alfie Allen is killing it. Danny's arc, though, is a real head scratcher too, as the way they've handled her marriage to Hisdar was really rushed and weak and often Barristan seemed really hasty too. I mean your mileage may feel vary on how you feel about Grey Worm and Miss Andy, but I still fear it's going nowhere. And I don't know. I mean, you guys heard the podcast. I wasn't really resistant to any of these changes even three weeks ago. In fact, I was arguing that they're all superior to what was going on in the books. Just as I said, you know, a couple of sentences ago, I feel like the double D's made some really smart consolidations of plot and character, but then they decided instead of running with those and making them their own and saying, how does this fit in with the new reality of these characters and situations? And how can we still hit the, the, the points at the end of dance so that we are still on track for next season like they usually always do they're very good about going off into the weeds but bringing it all back at the end and having the stuff in the weeds entertaining instead they've decided to shoehorn some of these big moments from discarded plots and characters onto the new ones and as a result it's like the characters are running around in clothes that just don't fit and it's not a good look uh sans is that's the pro i mean i guess a lot of people have misconstrued like I don't think you can't rape people on television and have it be compelling and interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe it's offensive and it gets people's blood up because it's a sensitive subject, but it's not like narratively bankrupt, but I don't see how you can have Sansa and build up her character to where she is ready to start becoming a player on the scene and then knock her on her ass this way. Um, but if you're trying to shoe shoehorn. This rape scene, which I was reading an interview to Double D's, and it seemed like they were really looking forward, really looking forward to adapting this scene and the dramatic possibilities of it, which, you know, when you think about that in terms of, like, well, let's wait until Sophie Turner turns 18, and then we can fil- It's kind of gross on top of everything else. But for some reason, they really, really dug this whole scene with Theon and Ramsey and fake Arya, and they wanted to bring that to the screen, and by God, regardless of whether her arc seems like it fits or not that's what they're going to do and they've done really good at hitting the big moments even when they're doing remixes and other seasons but yeah i i am genuinely worried about this bullet point stuff maybe maybe when they're just working with bullet points they'll have the freedom to not do this half-ass adaptation where they're kind of remixing, but they're kind of keeping stuff to, true. I mean, this this kind of shit that Kirkman does all the time in the Walking Dead series, it drives me crazy too. It's like, reinvent your characters and do stuff different, but then don't try to then shoehorn iconic moments from a comic book onto those characters or different characters and pretend like it's going to have the same emotional payback, payoff or dramatic opportunities. It just can't happen that way. So maybe... When they're just working on bullet point, it'll be a lot less stiff and more looser and more natural. I don't know. Uh, and we still got four episodes. So it's like, you know, way too early to start, uh, you know, drinking nightshade or, or whatever the Westerosi equivalent is and often ourselves. But yes, it certainly is a, con- a concern. Let's move on. Marky, e, I've been trying to figure out what show Doran Martell has been planning. After all his caution and care, resisting the lure of easy vengeance and the taunts of his nieces, what are his real plans? In the books, I really enjoyed when Doran revealed that he had been working to restore the Targaryens to the throne for years via ancient marriage alliances, and that he and Oberon discussed this and planned it together. I love this reveal. It put those rash, upstart youngsters in their place, and it was also important to establish that there might be a large, untapped reservoir of Targaryen loyalists in Westeros. So the question is, what has show version of Doran been doing and working on this whole time. Maybe he's just been working with Varys and the rest of the Targaryen restoration crew. For economy's sake, I'd accept it, and it would still make the Sand Snakes rethink how they view Doran as weak, but maybe, just maybe, we will actually see the Quentin Martell story. Okay, I know we won't, but this is just for funsies. It wouldn't make take much time to establish the story, just a kick-ass Doran speech about contracts written in blood, cut to Quentin and some friends on the way to Marine. There you go. I know we don't need Quentin to free the dragons, someone else could do that, but I've not given up on Doran being a master political operator. Now, having not heard about Quentin being cast, I assume this is not how it will all go down. So this leads me to believe a show-specific tinfoil theory that my wife and I have come up with this week. Maybe Quentin is already in Marine. We know the Dornish are all about fucking and fighting, both from Oberyn and from Braun's little speech to Jamie a few weeks ago. Who in Marine is into stuff like that? Dario Naharis, that's who. Since Dario has been presumed to be anyone from Euron Greyjoy to Benjen Stark, I figure why the hell not? He's the blank canvas we paint our dreams on. Clearly this tinfoil of ours is super unlikely, but it's fun and it could work. If we assume Dario equals Quentin as a late stage audible by the Double Ds, then the recasting of Dario makes even more sense. New Dario would pass as ethnically Dornish for sure. He's pretty crazy, lives for sex and war, seemed pretty quick to shift allegiances to Daenerys when his sellsword company was at war with her. Okay, so that last bit ends up in being a little bit of retconning, as Eurotrash Dario was the one to shift over to Danny's side, but in the show universe, it would all tie together plot-wise. And if there is one person in Marine who seems crazy enough to unchain the dragons, that'd be Dario. He's told Danny as much already. I know you speculated he would fulfill that role in the absence of Quentin, but what if he is literally Quentin? I'm not sure how I'd see this all playing out, but if I'm right, then Danny's marriage to his Dar should set this in motion. Maybe in response to the marriage, Dario unchains the dragons and dies from dragon fire before Danny, or telling Danny who he really is. Or maybe he tells her, and she is like, "I'm queen. I live for my dragons and my people, and not your hot bod." Such pathos. Happiness would be so close for Danny, but as always, she would ruin it. So I like a lot of this. You know, obviously, uh, talked about Jora being. Everyone to every everything to everyone. Uh so I'm not against this kind of stuff. My only problem that I have is it really seems to set Doran up as this man who thinks ten steps ahead of everyone else. And I don't know that I buy him as a plotter on the scale of Varys and Littlefinger. Now granted he's had decades to put this plot in motion. Well, not really decades. He's had years. Uh this isn't something he just come up with at the at, at the spur of the moment. But just think about the planning that would involve in sending his heir over to Essos to join a sellsword company in secret, to join up with the camp of Daenerys Targaryen, follow her around for a year or so, then when the Oberyn kicks the bucket, reveal your true identity, and be all like, fire and blood, Danny, let's go. I think it would make sense if he reveals to the Sand Snakes that, and to Ilaria that his big plot is to Queen Marcella, to wed her to Tristan and make the Martells and thus dorn the rulers of all of Westeros. Or at least make that political claim. I said earlier that I think that maybe you could ally with the Tyrells, but that's a problem since the Tyrells already have their blood on the throne with Marjorie. So that doesn't seem to make sense. But I don't know. Maybe Marjorie and Loris are in jail or executed or they're threatened with being executed. Maybe Lady Olena would have no choice. And it seems bizarre to completely write Daenerys out of his plot, too. I mean, Honestly, I have no idea what his plan is going to be because I just don't think Doran could win a land war against the Tyrells and Lannisters, let alone what the rest of Westeros would think of such a thing. So Crowning Marcella kind of worked as a crazy plan that, uh, you know, one of the princesses cooked up with the Sand Snakes. If it's the master plan of Doran, there's a lot of question mark, question mark, question mark in the middle stages of that. So... I don't know. That's the one thing that even six episodes in, I'm still really, really fuzzy about. Shelly R. Do we really know what's happening in the rape scene? Sansa seems to have something in the necklace she's wearing and she's doing something with her sleeves, with the camera focuses on right before Ramsey tears her dress off. Perhaps she has a concealed weapon. The only evidence that we have what's taking place is Sansa's screams and Theon's reaction. Is it possible that she was screaming while taking some violent revenge on Ramsey and that, Theon was reacting to what is happening to his master. Oh, Shelley, would that it were, but I don't think so. I think they have filmed this. They would have filmed the scene differently if that's what they're trying to suggest, because it didn't seem like like screams of revenge. It seemed more like sobbing of someone who's truly being broken physically and emotionally, Uh, you know, and then, you know, she kills the ram. That's the other problem with this is like. If I knew this scene was going to take place this week, I would have never made the whole Chekhov's pin because it's just too early in the season for things to conspire outside of the walls to make this more than just a suicidal gesture, right? You know, she kills Ramsay, then what? She's still in the middle of this castle with Theon as a potential ally, but he looks like he is still completely spineless. Uh. You know, she'd have to get Theon to the help her, climb to the tallest tower, and light the fucking candle in the highest window, wait for Brian to see it, and for her spring into action, they'd all have to get, you know, in Bran's case, get into Winterfell, and then figure out a way to escape Winterfell, which, you know, maybe she can. You know, Sansa's a Stark after all, and she'd know all about the castle's ways and passages, and Theon would, too, uh, with him being growing up and spending most of his life there. So, I don't know, maybe, but... Th- Honestly, I'm just not getting my hopes up after my failure to check off spike that fizzled. So my hope now is that Sansa can find some way to keep Ramsey as much at arm's length as he possibly can. That maybe Roos you know, another hope is that Roos just lowers the boom on Ramsey and is like, What the fuck do you think you're doing? Sansa screaming from your wedding chambers with all these Northerners around. We barely have a hold on power. I mean, he, maybe he faces real consequences. Maybe Ruse sends Ramsey away for a while to do some fucking mission to get him out of the castle. That, that gives Sansa some time to regroup and plan things out with Brienne and Theon and something. I don't know, because I really hope we're not in for two or three more episodes of her being brutalized by Ramsay before Stannis or Littlefinger or Brienne or whoever rolls in and saves Sansa. Cause it's just not going to, it's going to be depressing and not feel very satisfying, but I don't know. Maybe we should uh, get her guard up. Moving on. Devin M a quick IMDB search indicates that Gemma Whalen, who plays Yara will appear in episodes eight, nine and 10 of the season. Do you think she's going to be captured by Stannis like Asha in the books? Will she lead the commando assault on Winterfell or are they jumpstarting the Kings moot to take place early next season? First off, Devin, I hate to do this to you, but IMDb is fucked up all of the time. Before the start of the season, they had Michelle Fairley, who plays Catelyn Stark, listed on one or two of the later episodes, which got all the Lady Stoneheart hype going in full gear before it was revealed that it was a prank. I mean, people, I, I think fans can just edit that shit like Wikipedia style, and there's nothing that they can do to really stop it other than to see it and then correct it and maybe lock the article. So... I'm very skeptical of casting news that's not confirmed in any place except for IMDb. Uh, secondly, it would fit into books, but frankly, I have no idea why Asha is on the ride along to Winterfell in the first place. I mean, I know how she got there. I'm saying I'm not sure what narrative purpose it serves other than give us an all, a, a, a different POV in Stannis' camp because we never had Stannis. We don't have... You know, we've, we've had very few POVs in the Stannis's mind except for uh, Davos and now uh, Asha slash Yara. Now, I figure this will all somehow tie together in the books with the Euron and Victorian crap, but in the shows, who the hell knows? I mean, maybe, again, it's just going to give us a different POV and spice things up and, and make it seem like she's not a forgotten plotline. Maybe she tells Stannis Theon is being held prisoner at Winterfell and that he can use this to his advantage somehow. Maybe Melisandre can use some of that freaky deaky magic of hers to heal Theon's brain. Man, I wish I had an Iron Islander on this cast as a co-host because I'm really kind of useless in the Greyjoy speculation font. Because, one, I don't care a lot about the Greyjoys, and as a consequence, I'm not really up on what all they're doing and the ins and outs of all their plans. Uh, It's only kind of when they touch on some of the other tinfoil stuff I am interested in that I'm like, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. Anyway, that brings us to the spoiler. And it is a bit of a disappointment because I sat out. A lot of people had suggested, hey, have you seen this uh, this Preston Jacobs video series on YouTube? He's got all these cool theories where he's disputes the conventional wisdom of of r plus l equals j and he's got these crazy ashara dane and brendan stark equals uh equals john snow and and leon uh liana and regar equals Daenerys and and all this stuff and it's really super compelling so i'm like all right and i sat down today Actually, yesterday, and I watched like the first 15 minute video and I'm like, okay, well, this is this is interesting. He is poking some holes in R plus L equals J. I'll go ahead and start researching this. Long story short, by the end of the video series, I was less than impressed. And um, before, if you're not familiar with the R plus L equals D or A plus B equals J theories, you need to stop right now and go to the podcast uh, show notes which should be in your player. If not, it's on the article for this podcast on baldmove.com. and look at the three part series. I'm going to link because I first tried to just retell it. But what I found is that as I was trying to retell and present this thing with books from the the quotes from the book in context that this theories all just fell apart. And I'm not, I don't want to come off like I'm attacking, uh, Preston or Mr. Jacobs here, because I hear that he's got some videos that are that hold together a lot more uh, and that are more persuasive and compelling. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, Song of Ice and Fire fandom that's kind of up in an uproar about some of his videos, too, because, um, you know, they go beyond tinfoil and conspiracy theory to just kind of making shit up. And I definitely think this video uh, these video series highlights highlights the problems with the way he goes about and analyzes at least this portion of the Song of Ice and Fire universe. So if you're a big R plus L equals D and A plus B equals J supporter and believer, I you know I don't want you to be offended, but I just didn't find this persuasive at all. And this is not going to be a tinfoil segment so much as it's going to be a tinfoil takedown of this particular theory. So I can't describe to you all the theory – because to me I feel like part of that is me actually explaining it from the text and making sense of it. And I had a very hard time doing that. Again, you gotta watch the videos, but his core thing is he has problems with the R plus L uh equals J, and that the Ragar equals fire, Leon equals ice, and John equals savior is a nice neat and tidy story. But the supporting story that it's buried in is messy as hell. And he reduces a bunch of issues with the main narrative to support his claim, like Why is Ashara Dane in there? And who is this Wyla girl? And how did Ned pull down a tower by himself to make uh, burial uh, carns for men who fell at the Tower of Joy? And again, honestly, I struggled to come up with a firm grasp on what he was trying to say, because when you listen to it, it all sounds really good. But he hits you with so many out-of-context fragmentary quotes. I'm talking like a half sentence here and there. And so quickly that when you start to break it down and try to see where they they lead and the connections, instead of some of these things where you start thinking, oh, well, this is stupid. And then like, oh, no, there's something – it's more like, oh, that's interesting, but wait, this is going nowhere. So, you know, they're just – it's like nailing Jello to a tree. You just can't do it fast enough to get anything to stick. So the other thing is when he advances this theory – His own theory is just as problematic, in my opinion, as the R plus L equals J, which I think is actually bulletproof. I think a lot of the problems he has in the story are things that he is making a mountain out of a molehill, and he's ignoring a lot of the very strong textual support for R plus L equals J. For example, he says, where is Ashara in this R plus L equals J theory? Because she's a prominent part of Ned's travels and what happens and all this stuff. And he says this solely... Because Howland Reed gets all Twitter-pated with Ashara at the tourney of Harrenhal. And because later on when Kat's asking Ned about his relationship with Ashara, he gets all mad and commands people to stop asking him about John when she does that. And he's he just says, like, why would he? You know, no one's talking about John here. You know, Kat's asking about Ashara and Ned flips out. I'm like what the hell this is disingenuous are we to seriously take the concept that cat could be asking ed about a potential relationship with ashara as not having anything to do with john when you think about all the times uh you know cat is talking about john and worried about john and threatened the her children that john opposes and how she's mad about that the that he's the proof of the infidelity and all that bullshit we're supposed to take that this is an innocent question about ashara dane it doesn't make any sense and he supports this reasoning with, like, a half-sentence fragment about, you know, people at Winterfell stop whispering about Ashara Dane after this flip-out. I mean, I get a lot of tinfoil is kind of flimsy and along this way, but none of this is evidence that proves anything. Similarly, he has a big problem with Ned pulling down the Tower of Joy. He's all like, what the fuck? How can a single man pull down a whole tower? Why would he burn a tower? Hey, Cersei burned the Tower of the Hand with wildfire. Targaryens love wildfire. Blood magic happens in the books all the time. I know Rhaegar sent his Kingsguard down there to the tower to intentionally sacrifice themselves and set the tower on fire to burn themselves and Lyanna and his baby all at once. Which he then main- this baby he maintains is Danny, so that she could survive the fire and be the prince that was promised. I mean, none of this is evidence, man. This is just stuff that he has decided is true, and then has a bunch of things that could have happened to support his evidence. Like, instead of Ned burning, pulling down the tower, it came down because of some blood magic fire crescendo that Jon can't remember because of magic? That's literally his argument. Um, you know, and, like, this whole, like, why is it a problem that Ned pulls the tower down single-handedly? Brandon Builder as, is credited with building Winterfell and the wall and Storm's Inn. Are we to think that... He literally laid every brick and stone by hand entirely to himself. Hell no, that's silly. He, of course, had other men working under him. Ned is the commander of the rebel forces at this point because Robert's all laid up from his wounds at the Battle of the Trident. Uh, and while he didn't have more than seven men when he was leading his expeditionary force to find the tower in Dorne to begin with, he could easily call a team of men after the battle's over to pull down this tower and build memorials to these men that he held in great esteem and had much respect for. Another hinge point in his theory is to highlight irregularities in the travel times to decide that the order of events that's clearly stated in the novels is wrong. Even though Gurm himself is infamous for screwing up scales, distance, and travel times, this isn't evidence. This is saying, I don't like what the books are telling me, so I'm going to insert my own theory. And he has this bizarre thing where he calls Waltefels, which is the distance to get to Winterfell to the Wall and how long that takes. And then I'm going to use that unit of distance to measure how far it's going to take to ride or march men throughout all of Westeros. Ignoring the terrain ignoring how much more difficult it is to pass on the King's Road from Winterfell to the Wall, we're just going to generalize that and decide that this timeline that Martin lays out clearly in the books is wrong, and my super-secret timeline is right because if you measure it in Walterfell's, it all works out. It's That's not how you assemble evidence and make an argument. It's fun. Uh, if you want to do it, I'm not saying he's wrong. He's got a lot of views on his videos, so people like it. I just That kind of stuff drives me crazy. Also, he says that the promise that Ned makes to Leanna doesn't make sense because in his various dreams and nightmares, he thinks he's broken this promise. This doesn't make sense because in his mind, if R plus L equals J, well, John's at the wall and he's in no danger of all. Well, first of all, John's in plenty of danger at the wall. That's ridiculous to think that Ned wouldn't think that abandoning him at the wall and going down south is breaking uh, his promise to Leanna. Also, just last month, I had a nightmare that because of some technicality, I didn't actually graduate high school and had to go back and complete my senior year as a 39-year-old. Preston might hear me say that and conclude that I was a high school dropout. In the real world, nightmares are sometimes more about deep-seated fears than what actually happened. And by the way, again, letting Rhaegar and Lyanna go to the wall, or the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna go to the wall to renounce all of his titles and claims could very well be a betrayal of the promise to Lyanna. It's it's really hard when you're arguing about these fragmentary memories that Ned is deciding to share with us as the omniscient POV reader of these books to say that, well, that's the whole story, and there's obvious memory holes, and there's something else, and there's some dark, sinister plot. But instead of saying, like, okay, well, you know, dreams and nightmares are kind of weird, and yeah, I could also kind of see where Ned would think that this was kind of fucking over John and leaving him in the lurch, Preston claims it's more likely that the promise was all about saving Danny who's the real child of Rhaegar and Lyanna and he's agonizing over all the danger she's facing in Essos even though we know Danny was born on Dragonstone months after the Tower of Joy incident because that's what eyewitnesses including Danny's own brother Viserys tell us but don't worry Preston says that's not a problem because of course Viserys would lie about that because if Danny was Rhaegar's daughter then she'd be in line to rule and not him And apparently, there are no other credible witnesses on Dragonstone that could corroborate the story except for this eight-year-old little boy, Viserys. What's his evidence of this lying and this inconsistent eyewitness testimony? I'm not making this up. Danny remembers a lemon tree outside her window in her childhood home, the place with the red door. But lemon trees can't grow on Bravos because of a single sentence a character that was bitching about being cold and not being able to find an orange on Bravos uttered one time in the book, half a sentence, in all five books. This is the evidence of Viserys lied to Danny about their childhood and implanted false memories into her. Now to be fair, he does have some interesting moments in this in this theory. He uses the tale of Bale the Bard and how it has elements of blue roses and bards and kidnappings and towers and suicide and a Brandon and a bunch of Starks and and, and Crips. And he's mixing and matching elements from many different characters and settings over several different time periods to make these themes all fit. And there is a lot of parallel structures to all these things, but... Essentially, he's arguing that Ned took Ashara and Brandon's baby, who is Jon, to Winterfell because otherwise it might muddy the inheritance order of Starfall, the Dane's ancestral home. Seriously, all this baby swapping to help resolve the potential issue of a bastard Jon taking over Starfell? And then, to help Ned out in a prid quo quo, Ashara Dane fakes her own death by suicide and then steals Danny away to Dragonstone to help Ned keep his promised to Leanna. Again, this is evidence-free. There is nothing in the books to suggest any of this is happening. Nothing about her faking her death, any of that stuff. All these are just possible explanations made up out of whole cloth, completely unsupported by any text to prop up this A plus B, B equals J and R plus L equals D theory. Now, if you do buy the A plus B equals J theory, I have one question for you. Explain the significance of the blue flower growing from a chink of wall in the ice line from Danny's prophecies at the House of the Undying. Without the Leanna connection to John, there is none. There is none. If Leanna is John's mother, then this vision makes perfect sense. It really bothers me that Preston wants to destroy the R plus L equals J theory because of towers and inheritance issues with fucking Starfell. And the fact that Ashara Dane is there but not really explained, except for she kind of is, but does not even consider the impact of really important parts of A Song of Ice and Fire and other prophecies and the whole picture. It's like cherry picking at its worst. It's just a mess. And I can't articulate his theory with quotes from the books because there really aren't any. I mean, if you watch his video, he throws up a quote or two um, that is up there for a few seconds and moves on. But there's no connecting them all together. It's I don't know. It's like I've I've gone through this kind of exegis with like the Bible and stuff, and it just never leads to good places, in my opinion. And I can't argue against the theory of quotes of my own because it's like trying to box a shadow. There's just no there there. And I guess that's why I didn't enjoy it as tinfoil where I can get down on things like Roose Bolton being a vampire and crazy shit like Varys being a mermaid king because crazy or as out there as they may be, at least they have direct textual support and they don't contradict anything else that we know to be true or assume that everyone is lying about everything like this theory does. And I'm annoyed because I spent hours today trying to make all this work and trying to pull quotes that would support it and trying to make this case when I could have done something cool like Varys is the Merlin King and it would have at least gotten a good chuckle instead of me getting all like fired up about this videos having said that uh he's got a couple other ones called the Dornish Dornish conspiracy that is fairly high highly regarded uh and a, and a couple others that I, th- I think especially some with the ironborn that I think people uh seem to be a little bit higher on that i'm going to check out and maybe you guys can too because again not trying to start beef with preston uh you got to do what you got to do and you know these are all original theories he's coming up with these like you know i'm essentially just regurgitating a lot of stuff that i've read these are none of my own theories so i respect him for coming up with these i just think that if he just told you this without the video where it has the pictures and has the quotes flashing up that you would just dismiss it as nonsense out of hand but because there is all these really cool pictures that he's uh you know he's essentially done what i wanted to do with video before i realized how much fucking time it takes to produce a video and how short a turnaround time i have on this stuff because of that it seems more impressive than it is anyway it might be fun for you to check out again it, it is interesting when you watch it for the first time you're not really thinking about it because it's like oh yeah okay and you do learn a lot about the lore like he goes into really great detail about the Howland reed and liana stark and how the attorney of Heron hall went and the knight of the laughing tree and some of that interesting stuff but it doesn't really have anything to do with anything so i'm curious to see if anybody has any alternate takes and if you are uh again a r plus l equals d theory believer i'd like to hear from you to see if i'm missing something because i just don't get it anyway sorry didn't get a real tinfoil section it's just a tinfoil takedown but i spent so much time on this stuff that i normally when i get because i've had this before i'd get to a tinfoil and i'm like well this is bullshit i can't even say this is a straight face it's not edifying it's just stuff people making stuff up i usually scrap it and then pull down another one and make it but it's didn't have time because by the time I'd made that determination, uh, the day had gotten away from me. So hopefully I'll do better next week. If you'd like to send in feedback, as always, you can do so at game of Thrones at Baldmove.com. You could also get on our forums and talk about this episode or any, uh, make sure you flag stuff as spoilers or you use the threads that are, uh, marked as spoilers. So you don't, uh, un- you don't sully the unsullied really appreciate, uh, any support you could give us with club that where you can get access to ad-free podcasts and a bunch of other really cool features, because the only way I can do these enhanced super spoiler theory editions is with your guys' direct listener support. So everyone that is a club member really appreciate it. And if you're not, maybe take uh, this opportunity to go to club.baldmove.com and check it out. I'll be back next week with another spoiler edition. Uh, We'll be back Sunday with an instant cast. Hopefully, this episode will pull us out of this nosedive and answer some questions, give us some juicy stuff about Dorne to get us reinvested, because I think we need it. I think we need a shot in the arm. We need need a tankard full of ale from the Double Ds to kind of get us all reinvested and reinvigorated. Regardless, we'll be there for you next week. Until then, have a great weekend, and I'm Aaron.